Chapters 13 through 15 of Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Viking. 13. Beowulf was bad. Valkenhayn and Spasso had both been opposed to the raid. Nobody raided Beowulf. Beowulf was too tough. Beowulf had nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, and contragravity and normal spacecraft. They even had colonies on a couple of other planets of their system. They had everything but hyperdrive. Beowulf was a civilized planet, and you didn't raid civilized planets, not and get away with it. And besides, hadn't they gotten enough loot on Amaterasu? No, we did not, Trask told them. If we're going to make anything out of Tanith, we're going to need power, and I don't mean windmills and water wheels. As you've remarked, Beowulf has nuclear energy. That's where we get our plutonium and our power units. So they went to Beowulf. They came out of hyperspace eight light-hours from the F-7 star, of which Beowulf was the fourth planet, and twenty light-minutes apart. Guat Kirby made a micro-jump that brought the ships within practical communicating distance, and they began making plans in an intership screen conference. There are, or were, three chief sources of fissionable ores, Harkeman said. The last ship to raid here and get away was Stefan Kintower's Princess of Lioness, sixty years ago. He hit one on the Antarctic continent. According to his account, everything there was fairly new. He didn't mess things up too badly, and it ought to be still operating. We'll go in from the South Pole, and we'll have to go in fast. They shifted personnel and equipment. They would go in bunched, the pinnaces ahead. They and the space scourge would go down to the ground, while the better-armed nemesis would hover above to fight off local contragravity, shoot down missiles, and generally provide overhead cover. Trask transferred to the space scourge, taking with him Moreland and two hundred of the nemesis ground fighters. Most of the single mounts, landing craft, and manipulators and heavy-duty lifters went with him jamming the decks around the vehicle ports of Valkenhayn's ship. They jumped in to six light minutes, and while Valkenhayn's astrogator was still fiddling with his controls, they began sensing radar and micro-ray detection. When they came out again, they were two light seconds off the South Pole, and half a dozen ships were either in orbit or coming up from the planet. All normal spacecraft, of course but some were almost as big as the Nemesis. From there on, it was a nightmare. Ships pounded at them with guns, and they pounded back. Missiles went out, and counter-missiles stopped them in rapidly expanding and quickly vanishing globes of light. Red lights flashed on the damage board, and sirens howled and klaxons squawked. In the outside view-screens, they saw the Nemesis vanish in a blaze of radiance and then, while their hearts were still in their throats, come out of it again. Red lights went off on the board as damage control crews and their robots sealed the breaches in the hull, and pumped air back into evacuated areas, and then more red lights came on. 
Occasionally they would glance toward Boke Valkenhayn, who sat motionless in his chair, chewing a cigar that had gone out long ago. He wasn't enjoying it, but he wasn't showing fear. Once a Beowulfer vanished in a supernova flash, and when the ball of incandescence widened to nothing the ship was gone. All Valkenhayn said was, Hope one of our boys did that. They fought their way in and down, toward the atmosphere. Another Beowulf ship blew up, a craft about the size of Spasso's Lamia. A moment later, another. Valkenhayn was pounding the desk in front of him with his fist, and yelling, That was one of ours! Find out who launched it! Get his name! Missiles were coming up from the planet now. Valkenhayn's detection officer was trying to locate the source. While he was trying, a big, melon-shaped thing fell away from the nemesis, and in the jiggling, radiation-distorted intership screen Harkeman's image was laughing. Hellburner just went off! Target about fifty degrees south, twenty-five degrees east of the sunrise line! That's where those missiles are coming from! Counter-missiles sped toward the big metal melon. Defense missiles, robot-launched, met them. The Hellburner's track was marked first by expanding red and orange globes in airless space, and then by fire-puffs after it entered atmosphere. It vanished into the darkness beyond the sunset, and then made a sunlight of its own. It was sunlight, a beta-solar phoenix reaction, and it would sustain itself for hours. He hoped it hadn't landed within a thousand miles of their objective. The ground operation was a nightmare of a different sort. He went down in a command car with Patrick Moreland and a couple of others. There were missiles and gun batteries. There were darting patterns of flights of combat vehicles, blazing gunfire, and single vehicles that shot past or blew up in front of them. Robots on contragravity, military robots with missiles to launch, and working robots with only their own mass to hurl flung themselves mindlessly at them. Screens that went crazy from radiation, speakers that jabbered contradictory orders. Finally the battle, which had raged in the air over two thousand square miles of mines and refineries and reaction plants, became two distinct and concentrated battles, one at the packing plant and storage vaults, and one at the power unit cartridge factory. Three pinnaces came down to form a triangle over each. The space scourge hung midway between, poured out a swarm of vehicles and big claw-armed manipulators. Armored lighters and landing craft shuttled back and forth. The command car looped and dodged from one target to the other. At one, keg-like canisters of plutonium, collapsium-plated and weighing tons apiece, were coming out of the vaults and at the other lifters were bringing out loads of nuclear-electric power-unit cartridges, some as big as a ten-liter jar to power a spaceship engine, and some small as a round of pistol ammunition for things like flashlights. Every hour or so he looked at his watch, and it would be three or four minutes later. At last, when he was completely convinced that he had really been killed, and was damned and would spend all eternity in this fire-riven chaos, the nemesis began firing red flares and the speakers in all the vehicles were signaling recall. 
He got aboard the space skirt somehow, after assuring himself that nobody who was alive was left behind. There were twenty-odd who weren't, and the sick bay was full of wounded who had gone up with cargo, and more were being helped off the vehicles as they were berthed. The car in which he had been riding had been hit several times, and one of the gunners was bleeding under his helmet and didn't seem aware of it. When he got to the command room he found Boke Valkenhayn, his face drawn and weary, getting coffee from a robot and lacing it with brandy. "'That's it,' he said, blowing on the steaming cup. It was the battered silver one that had been in front of him when he had first appeared in the Nemesis screen. He nodded toward the damaged screen. Everything had been patched up, or the outer decks around the breached portions of the hull sealed. "'Ship secure!' He set down the silver mug and lit a cigar. To quote Garvin Spasso, nobody can call that chicken-stealing. No, not even if you count Tizona giraffe birds as chickens. That Graham Gumpair brandy you're putting in that coffee? I'll have the same. Just leave out the coffee. 14. The Lamia's detection picked them up as soon as they were out of the last micro-jump. Trask's gnawing fear that Dunnan might attack in their absence had been groundless. Incredibly, he realized, they had been gone only thirty-odd galactic standard days, and in that time Alvin Carford had done an incredible amount of work. He had gotten the spaceport completely cleared of rubble and debris, and he had the woods cleared away from around it and the two tall buildings. The locals called the city Riven. A few inscriptions found here and there in it indicated that the original name had been Rivington. He had done considerable mapping, in some detail of the continent on which it was located, and in general of the rest of the planet. And he had established friendly relations with the people of Trade Town, and made friends with their king. Nobody, not even those who had collected it, quite believed their eyes when the loot was unloaded. The little herd of long-haired unicorns—the Capera locals had called them Craigs, probably a corruption of the name of some naturalist who had first studied them—had come through the voyage and even the Battle of Beowulf in good shape. Trask and a few of his former cattlemen from Traskin watched them anxiously, and the ship's doctor, acting veterinarian, made elaborate tests of the vegetation they would be likely to eat. Three of the cows proved to be with calf. These were isolated and watched over with a special solicitude. The locals were inclined to take a poor view of the crags at first. Cattle ought to have two horns, one on either side, curved back. It wasn't right for cattle to have only one horn, in the middle, slanting forward. Both ships had taken heavy damage. The nemesis had one pinnace berth knocked open and everybody was glad the Beowulfers hadn't noticed that and gotten a missile inside. The space scourge had taken a hit directly on her south pole while lifting out from the planet, and a good deal of the southern part of the ship was sealed off when she came in. The nemesis was repaired as far as possible and put on off-planet patrol. Then they went to work on the space scourge, transferring much of her armament to ground defense, clearing out all the available cargo space, and repairing her hull as far as possible. To repair her completely was a job for a regular shipyard, like Alex Gorham's on Graham. 
and that was where the work would be done. Volk Valkenhayn would commander on the voyage to and from Graham. Since Beowulf, Trask had not only ceased to dislike the man, but was beginning to admire him. He had been a good man once, before ill fortune which had been only part of his own making had overtaken him. He had just let himself go and stopped caring. Now he had taken hold of himself again. It had started showing, after they had landed, on Amaterasu. He had begun to dress more neatly and speak more grammatically, to look and act more like a spaceman and less like a barfly. His men had begun to jump to obey when he gave an order. He had opposed the raid on Beowulf, but that had been the dying struggle of the chicken-thief he had been. He had been scared going in. Well, who hadn't been, except a few greenhorns brave with the valor of ignorance? But he had gone in and fought his ship well, and had held his station over the Fishnables plant in a hell of bombs and missile, and he had made sure everybody who had gone down and who was still alive was aboard before he lifted out. He was a space Viking again. Garvin Spasso wasn't and never would be. He was outraged when he heard that Valkenhayn would take his ship, loaded with much of the loot of the three planets, to Graham. He came to Trask, fairly spluttering about it. "'You know what'll happen?' he demanded. "'He'll space out with that cargo, and that'll be the last any of us'll hear of him again. He'll probably take it to Joyeuse or Excalibur and buy himself a lordship with it. Oh, I doubt that, Garvin. A number of our people are going along. Guat Kirby will be the astrogator. You'd trust him, wouldn't you? And Sir Patrick Morland, and Baron Rathmore, and Lord Valpry, and Rolf Hammerding. He was silent for a moment, struck by an idea. Would you be willing to make the trip in the space scourge, too? Spasso would, very decidedly. Trass nodded. Good. Then we'll be sure nothing crooked is pulled," he said seriously. After Spasso was gone, he got in touch with Baron Rathmore. See to it that he gets as much money that's due to him as possible when you get to Graham. And ask Duke Angus, as a favor, to give him some meaningless position with a suitably impressive title, Lord Chamberlain of the Ducal Washroom or something. Then he can prime him with misinformation and give him an opportunity to sell it to Omfrey of Glaspeth. Then, of course, he could be contacted to sell Omfrey out to Angus. A couple of times around, and somebody'll stick a knife in him, and then we'll be rid of him for good." They loaded the space scourge with gold from Stalgoland, and paintings and statues from the art museums, and fabrics and furs and jewels and porcelains and plate from the markets of Eglinsby. They loaded sacks and kegs of specie from Capera. Most of the Capera loot wasn't worth hauling to Graham, but it was far enough in advance of their own technologies to be priceless to the Tanith locals. Some of these were learning simple machine operations, and a few were able to handle contragravity vehicles that had been fitted with adequate safety devices. The former slave guards had all become sergeants and lieutenants in an infantry regiment that had been formed and the king of Traytown borrowed some to train his own army. Some genius in the machine shop altered a matchlock musket to flintlock and showed the local gunsmiths how to do it. 
The Craigs continued to thrive after the space scourge departed. Several calves were born and seemed to be doing well. The biochemistry of Tanith and Capera were safely alike. Trask had hopes for them. Every Viking ship had its own carniculture vats, but men tired of carniculture meat, and fresh meat was always in demand. Some day, he hoped, Craig beef would be an item of sale to ships putting in on Tanith, and the long-haired hides might even find a market in the sword worlds. They had contragravity scows plying between Rivington and Traytown regularly now, and air lorries were linking the villages. The boatmen of Traytown rioted occasionally against this unfair competition, and in Rivington itself bulldozers and power shovels and manipulators labored and there was always a rising cloud of dust over the city. There was so much to do, and only a trifle under twenty-five galactic standard hours in a day to do it. There were whole days in which he never thought once of Andre Dunnan. A hundred and twenty-five days to Graham, and a hundred and twenty-five days back. That had long ago passed. Of course there would be the work of repairing the space scourge, the conferences with the investors in the original Tanith adventure, the business of gathering the needed equipment for the new base. Even so, he was beginning to worry a little. Worry about something as far out of his control as the space scourge was useless, he knew. Even Harkaman, usually unperturbable, began to be fretful after two hundred and seventy days had passed. They were relaxing in the living quarters they had fitted out at the top of the spaceport building before retiring, both sprawled wearily in chairs that had come from one of the better hotels of Eglinsby, their drinks between them on a low table, the top of which was inlaid with something that looked like ivory but wasn't. On the floor beside it lay the plans for a reaction plant and mass-energy converter they would build as soon as the space scourge returned with equipment for producing collapsium-plated shielding. Of course, we could go ahead with it now, Harkeman said. We could tear enough armor off the Lamia to shield any kind of a reaction plant. That was the first time either of them had gotten close to the possibility that the ship mightn't return. Trask laid his cigar in the ashtray. It had come from President Pedrosan Pedro's private office, and splashed a little more brandy into his glass. She'll be coming before long. We have enough of our people aboard to make sure nobody else tries to take the ship, and I really believe now that Valkenhayn can be trusted. I do, too. I'm not worried about what might happen on the ship, but we don't know what's been happening on Graham. Glaspeth and Didricksburg could have teamed up and jumped Wardshaven before Duke Angus was ready to invade Glaspeth. Boke might be landing the ship in a trap at Wardshaven. Be a sorry-looking trap after it closed on him. That would be the first time in history that a sword world was raided by space Vikings. Harkeman looked at his half-empty glass, then filled it to the top. It was the same drink he started with, just as a regiment that has been decimated and recruited up to strength a few times is still the same regiment. The buzz of the communication screen, one of the few things in the room that hadn't been looted somewhere, interrupted him. They both rose. Harkeman, still carrying his drink, went to put it on. It was a man on duty in the control room, overhead, reporting that two emergencies had just been detected at twenty light minutes due north of the planet. Harkeman gulped his drink and set down the empty glass. 
All right. You put out a general alert? Switch anything that comes in over to this screen. He got out his pipe and was packing tobacco into it mechanically. They'll be out of the last micro-jump and about two light seconds away in a few minutes. Trask sat down again, saw that his cigarette had burned almost to the tip and lit a fresh one from it, wishing he could be as calm about it as Harkeman. Three minutes later, the control tower picked up two emergences at a light second and a half, a thousand or so miles apart. Then the screen flickered, and Boke Valkenhayn was looking out of it, from the desk in the newly refurbished command room of the Space Scourge. He was a newly refurbished Boke Valkenhayn, too. His heavily braided captain's jacket looked like the work of one of the better tailors on Graham, and on the breast was a large and ornate night star of unfamiliar design, bearing, among other things, the sword and atom symbol of the House of Ward. "'Prince Trask, Count Harkeman,' he greeted. "'Space Scourge, Tanneth. Thirty-two hundred hours out of Wardshaven on Graham. Baron Valkenhayn commanding. Accompanied by chartered freighter Rosinante, Durendal, Captain Morbs. Requesting permission and instructions to orbit in.' "'Baron Valkenhayn?' Harkeman asked. "'That's right,' Valkenhayn grinned. "'And I have a vellum scroll the size of a blanket to prove it. I have a whole cargo of scrolls. One says you're Otto, Count Harkeman, and another says you're Admiral of the Royal Navy of Graham.' "'He did it!' Trask cried. "'He made himself King of Graham.' "'That's right. And you're his trusty and well-loved Lucas, Prince Trask.' and Viceroy of His Majesty's Realm of Tanith. Harkeman bristled at that. The Gehenna, you say? This is our Realm of Tanith. Is His Majesty making it worthwhile to accept his sovereignty? Trask asked. That is, beside vellum scrolls. Valkenhayn was still grinning. Wait till we start sending cargo down, and wait till you see what's crammed into the other ship. "'Did Spasso come back with you?' Harkeman asked. "'Oh, no. Sir Garvin Spasso entered the service of His Majesty King Angus. He is chief of police at Glaspeth now, and nobody can call what he's doing there chicken-stealing either. And chickens he steals. He steals the whole farm to get them.' That didn't sound good. Spasso could make King Angus' name stink all over Glaspeth or maybe he'd allow Spasso to crush the adherents of Omfrey, and then hang him for his oppression of the people. He'd read about somebody who'd done something like that in one of Harkeman's old Terran history books. Baron Rathmore had stayed on Graham, so had Rolf Hemmerding. The rest of the gentlemen adventurers, all with shiny new titles of nobility, had returned. From them, as the two ships were getting into orbit, he learned what had happened on Graham since the nemesis had spaced out. Duke Angus had announced his intention of carrying on with the Tanith adventure, and had started construction of a new ship at the Gorham Yards. This had served plausibly to explain all the activities of preparation for the invasion of Glaspeth, and had deceived Duke Omfrey completely. Omfrey had already started a ship of his own. The entire resources of his duchy were thrown into an effort to get her finished, and to space ahead of the one Angus was building. Work was going on frantically on her when the Wardshaven invaders hit Glaspeth. 
She was now nearing completion as a unit of the Royal Navy. Duke Omfray had managed to escape to Didricksburg. When Angus' troops moved in on the latter duchy, he had escaped again, this time off-planet. He was now eating the bitter bread of exile at the court of his wife's uncle, the King of Halteclere. The Count of Newhaven, the Duke of Biglersport, and the Lord of Northport, all of whom had favored the establishment of a planetary monarchy, had immediately acknowledged Angus as their sovereign. So, with a knife at his throat, had the Duke of Didricksburg. Many other feudal magnates had refused to surrender their sovereignty. That might mean fighting, but Patrick, now Baron Morland, doubted it. The space guard stopped that, he said. When they heard about the base here, and saw what we'd shipped to Graham, they started changing their minds. Only subjects of King Angus will be allowed to invest in the Tanith adventure. As for accepting King Angus' annexation of Tanith, and accepting his sovereignty, that would also be advisable. They would need a sword-world outlet for the loot they took or obtained by barter from other space Vikings, and until they had adequate industries of their own, they would be dependent on Graham for many things which could not be gotten by raiding. "'I suppose the King knows I'm not here for my health, or his profit,' he asked Lord Valpry during one of the screen conversations as the space scourge was getting into orbit. "'My business out here is Andre Dunnan.' "'Oh, yes,' the Wardshaven noble replied. "'In fact, he told me, in so many words, that he would be most happy if you sent him his nephew's head in a block of lucite. What Dunnan did touched his honor, too. Sovereign princes never see any humor in things like that.' I suppose he knows that sooner or later Dunnan will try to attack Tanith. If he doesn't, it isn't because I didn't tell him often enough. When you see the defense armament we're bringing, you'll think he does. It was impressive, but nothing to the engineering and industrial equipment. Mining robots for use on the iron moon of Tanith, and normal space transports for the 50,000-mile run between planet and satellite. A collapsed matter producer. Now they could collapsium plate their own shielding. A small, fully robotic steel mill that could be set up and operated on the satellite. Industrial robots and machinery to make machinery. And, best of all, two hundred engineers and highly skilled technicians. Quite a few industrial baronies on Graham would realize, before long, what they had lost in those men. He wondered what Lord Trask of Traskin would have thought about that. The Prince of Tanith was no longer interested in what happened to Graham. Maybe, if things prospered for the next century or so, his successors would be ruling Graham by Viceroy from Tanith. 15. As soon as the space scourge was unloaded, she was put on off-planet watch. Harkeman immediately spaced out in the Nemesis, while Trask remained behind. They began unloading the Rosinante after setting her down at Rivington Spaceport. After that was done, her officers and crew took a holiday which lasted a month until the Nemesis returned. Harkeman must have made quick raids on half a dozen planets. None of the cargo he brought back was spectacularly valuable, and he dismissed the whole thing as chicken-stealing but he had lost some men, and the ship showed a few fresh scars. 
A good deal of what was transshipped to the Rosinante was manufactured goods which would compete with merchandise produced on Graham. That load will be a come-down, after what the space scourge took back, but we didn't want to send the Rosinante back empty, he said. One thing, I had time to do a little reading between stops. The books from the Eglinsby Library? Yes, I learned a curious thing about Amaterasu. Do you know why the planet was so extensively colonized by the Federation, when there didn't seem to be any fissionable ores? The planet produced gadolinium. Gadolinium was essential to hyperdrive engines. The engines of a ship the size of the Nemesis required fifty pounds of it. On the sword worlds, it was worth several times its weight in gold. If they still mined it, Amaterasu would repay a second visit. When he mentioned it, Harkaman shrugged. Why should they mine it? There's only one thing it's good for, and you can't run a spaceship on diesel oil. I suppose the mines could be reopened, and new refineries built, but we could trade plutonium for gadolinium. They have none of their own. We could charge our own prices for it, and we wouldn't need to tell them what the gladolinium sells for on the sword worlds. We could, if we could do business with anybody there, after what we did to Eglinsby and Stalgaland. Where would we get plutonium? Why do you think the Beowulfers don't have hyperships, when they have everything else?" Harkeman snapped his fingers. By Satan, that's it! Then he looked at Trask in alarm. Hey, you're not thinking of selling Amaterasu plutonium and Beowulf gadolinium, are you? Why not? We can make a big profit on both ends of the deal. You know what would happen next, don't you? There'd be ships from both planets all over the place in a few years. We want that like we want a hole in the head. He couldn't see the objection. Tanith and Amaterasu and Beowulf could work up a very good triangular trade. All three would profit. It wouldn't cost men and ship damage and ammunition either. Maybe a mutual defense alliance, too. Think about it later. There was too much to do here on Tanith at present. There had been mines on the moon of Tanith before the collapse of the Federation. They had been stripped of their equipment afterward, while Tanith was still fighting a rearguard battle against barbarism. But the underground chambers and man-made caverns could still be used, and in time the mines were reopened and the steel mill put in, and eventually ingots of finished steel were coming down by shuttlecraft. In the meantime, the shipyard had been laid out and was taking shape. The Graham ship Queen Flavia, she had been the one found unfinished at Glaspeth, came in three months after the Rosinante started back. She must have been finished while Valkenhayn was still in hyperspace. She carried considerable cargo, some of it superfluous, but all of it useful. Everybody was investing in the Tanith adventure now, and the money had to be spent for something. Better, she brought close to a thousand men and women. The leakage of brains and ability from the sword worlds was turning into a flood. Among them was Basil Gorham. Trask remembered him as an insufferable young twerp, but he seemed to be a good shipyard man. He very frankly predicted that in a few years his father's yards at Wardshaven would be idle, and all the Tanith ships would be Tanith built. 
a junior partner of Lothar Fales also came out, to establish a branch of the Bank of Wardshaven at Rivington. As soon as the Queen Flavia had discharged her cargo and passengers, she took on five hundred ground-fighters from the Lamia, Nemesis, and Space Scourge companies, and spaced out on a raiding voyage. While she was gone, the second ship, the one Duke Angus had started at Wardshaven, and King Angus had finished, the Black Star came in. Trask was slightly incredulous at realizing that she had spaced out from Graham almost exactly two years after the Nemesis had departed. He still hadn't any idea where Andre Dunnan was, or what he was doing, or how to find him. The news of the Graham base on Tanith spread slowly, first by the scheduled liners and tramp freighters that linked the sword worlds, and then by trading ships and outbound space vikings to the old Federation. Two years and six months after the Nemesis had come out of hyperspace to find Boke Valkenhayn and Garvin Spasso on Tanith, the first independent space viking came in to sell a cargo and get repairs. They bought his loot. He had been raiding some planet rather above the level of Capera and below that of Amaterasu, and healed the wounds his ship had taken getting it. He had been dealing with the Everard family on Hoth, and professed himself much more satisfied with the bargains he had gotten on Tanith, and swore to return. He had never even heard of Andre Dunnan or the Enterprise. It was a Gilgamesher that brought the first news. He had first heard of Gilgameshers, the word was used indiscriminately for a native of, or a ship from, Gilgamesh, on Graham, from Harkeman and Carford and Van Larch and the others. Since coming to Tanith, he had heard about them from every space viking, never in complimentary and rarely in printable terms. Gilgamesh was rated, with reservations, as a civilized planet, though not on a level with Odin or Isis or Baldur or Marduk or Aton, or any of the other worlds which had maintained the culture of the Terran Federation uninterruptedly. Perhaps Gilgamesh deserved more credit. Its people had undergone two centuries of darkness and pulled themselves out of it by their bootstraps. They had recovered all the old techniques, up to and including the hyperdrive. They didn't raid, they traded. They had religious objections to violence, though they kept these within sensible limits, and were able and willing to fight with fanatical ferocity in defense of their home planet. About a century before, there had been a five-ship Viking raid on Gilgamesh. One ship returned, and had been sold for scrap after reaching a friendly base. Their ships went everywhere to trade, and wherever they traded a few of them usually settled, and where they settled they made money, sending most of it home. Their society seemed to be a loose theosocialism, and their religion an absurd potpourri of most of the major monotheisms of the Federation period, plus doctrinal and ritualistic innovations of their own. Aside from their propensity for sharp trading, their bigoted refusal to regard anybody not of their creed as more than half-human, and their maze of dietary and other taboos in which they hid from social contact with others, made them generally disliked. After their ship had gotten into orbit, three of them came down to do business. 
The captain and his exec wore long coats, almost knee-length, buttoned to the throat, and small white caps, like forage caps. The third, one of their priests, wore a robe with a cowl, and the symbol of their religion, a blue triangle in a white circle on his breast. They all wore beards that hung down from their cheeks, with their chins and upper lips shaved. They all had the same righteous, disapproving faces, they all refused refreshments of any sort, and they sat uneasily, as though fearing contamination from the heathens who had sat in their chairs before them. They had a mixed cargo of general merchandise, picked up here and there on sub-civilized planets, in which nobody on Tanith was interested. They also had some good stuff, vegetable amber and flame-bird plumes from Ermensul, ivory, or something very like it, from somewhere else, diamonds and other organic opals and Zarathustra sunstones. They also had some platinum. They wanted machinery, especially contragravity engines and robots. The trouble was, they wanted to haggle. Haggling, it seemed, was the Gilgamesh planetary sport. "'Have you ever heard of a space Viking ship named the Enterprise?' he asked them, at the seventh or eighth impasse in the bargaining. She bears a crescent, light blue on black. Her captain's name is Andre Dunnan. A ship so named, with such a device, raided Chermash more than a year ago, the priest supercargo said. Some of our people tarry on Chermash to trade. This ship sacked the city in which they were. Some of them lost heavily in world's goods. That's a pity. The Gilgamesh priest shrugged. It is as Yah the Almighty wills, he said, then brightened slightly. The Chermashers are heathens and worshippers of false gods. The space Vikings looted their temple and destroyed it utterly. They carried away the graven images and abominations. Our people bore witness that there was much wailing and lamentation among the idolaters. So that was the first entry on the big board. It covered, optimistically, the whole of one wall in his office, and for some time that one chalked note about the raid on Shermosh, and the date, as nearly as it could be approximated, looked very lonely on it. The captain of the Black Star brought back material for a couple more. He had put in on several planets known to be temporarily occupied by space Vikings, to barter loot, give his men some time off ship, and make inquiries, and he had names for a couple of planets raided by the Blue Crescent ship. One was only six months old. The way news filtered about in the old Federation, that was practically hot off the stove. The owner-captain of the Albarak had something to add, when he brought his ship in six months later. He sipped his drink slowly as though he had limited himself to one and wanted to make it last as long as possible. "'Almost two years ago, on Jaganath,' he said. The Enterprise was on orbit there, getting some light repairs. I met the man a few times. Looks just like those pictures, but he's wearing a small pointed beard now. He sold a lot of loot. General merchandise, precious and semi-precious stones, a lot of carved and inlaid furniture that looked as though it had come from some neo-barb king's palace, and some temple stuff. Buddhist. 
there were a couple of big gold daibutsus. His crew were standing drinks for all comers. Some of them were pretty dark above the collar, as though they had been on a hot-star planet not too long before. And he had a lot of Imhotep furs to sell, simply fabulous stuff. What kind of repairs? Combat damage? That was my impression. He spaced out a little over a hundred hours after I came in, in company with another ship. The Starhopper, Captain Theodore Vaughn. The talk was that they were making a two-ship raid somewhere. The captain of the Alborak thought for a moment. One other thing. He was buying ammunition, everything from pistol cartridges to hell-burners. And he was buying all the air and water recycling equipment and all the carniculture and hydroponic equipment he could get. That was something to know. He thanked the space viking, and then asked, Did he know at the time that I'm out here hunting for him? If he did, nobody else on Jaganath did. I didn't hear about it myself till six months afterward. That evening he played off the recording he had made of the conversation for Harkeman and Valkenhayn and Carford and some of the others. Somebody instantly said, That temple stuff came from Chermosh. They're Buddhists there. That checks with the Gilgamesher story. He got the furs on Imhotep. He traded for them, Harkeman said. Nobody gets anything off Imhotep by raiding. The planet's in the middle of a glaciation. The land surface down to the fiftieth parallel is iced over solid. There is one city, ten or fifteen thousand, and the rest of the population is scattered around in settlements of a couple of hundred all along the face of the glaciers. They're all hunters and trappers. They have some contragravity, and when a ship comes in they spread the news by radio and everybody brings in his furs to town. They use telescope sights and everybody over ten years old can hit a man in the head at five hundred yards. And big weapons are no good, they're too well dispersed. So the only way to get anything out of them is to trade for it." "'I think I know where he was,' Alvin Carford said. On Imhotep, silver is a monetary metal. On Agni, they use silver for sewer pipe. Agni is a hot star planet, class B-3 sun. And on Agni they are tough, and they have good weapons. That could be where the Enterprise took the combat damage. That started an argument as to whether he'd gone to Chermosh first. It was sure that he had gone to Agni and then Imhotep. Guat Kirby tried to figure both courses. It doesn't tell us anything either way, he said at length. Chermosh is a way off to the side from Agni and Imhotep in either case. Well, he does have a base somewhere, and it's not on any Terra-type planet," Valkenhayn said. Otherwise, what would he want with all that air and water and hydroponic and carniculture stuff? The old Federation area was full of non-Terra-type planets, and why should anybody bother going to any of them? Any planet that wasn't oxygen atmosphere, six to eight thousand miles in diameter, and within a narrow surface temperature range, wasn't worth wasting time on. But a planet like that, if one had the survival equipment, would make a wonderful hideout. "'What sort of a captain is this Theodore Vaughn?' he asked. "'A good one,' Harkeman said promptly. 
He has a nasty streak, sadistic, but he knows his business, and he has a good ship and a well-trained crew. You think he and Dunnan have teamed up? Don't you? I think, now that he has a base, Dunnan is getting a fleet together." "'He'll know we're after him by now,' Van Lart said. "'And he knows where we are, and that puts him one up on us.'" End of chapter 15